This is Jeremiah chapter 2. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. I was a bride. You loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord? who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its produce, its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look, Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever exchanged its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared and they've growled at him and they have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also the men of Memphis and Taphanes have cracked your skull. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now why go to, Israel, now why go to Egypt and drink water from the Nile? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the Euphrates? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord, your God, and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? 
although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. And I'm reading John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. The disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will rise it, raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. The word of the Lord. I want to echo what Neil shared this morning about, you know, reading that passage. But I'd also invite you, encourage you, to read the whole book of Jeremiah over the coming month, month or two. Even read through it a couple times. There's so much content in there. We're only going to be touching on it. And God has a lot to say to us through it. And when I'm up here speaking, when Ben's up here speaking next week, or any of us, um, we hope it's not us you're hearing. We hope it's God speaking through us in some way or some form. And I know the number of times that I've said, okay, that's the point. That's the one that's going to hit home. Nobody responds to that. And there's something else that the Spirit was just nudging them with in their hearts as they listened. And I, I just love that, that we depend on the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us as we read, and as we gather as a community to discern and uh, to work together. Um, just a couple things before we jump into the message. Um, Thank you for wearing name tags. <laughs> now, I've realized that name tags are kind of one of these strange things. Nobody likes wearing a name tag. Fair? But we seem to all appreciate other people wearing them. And I've heard that again and again over the last, um, the last couple of weeks as we've done this. Um, we're going to be wearing these periodically. It's just a really convenient way because for some reason we have hang-ups in our world of asking people their name. We're like, oh, they're going to think I don't care because I don't remember their name. So when we wear a name tag, it gives you that chance. So this is the last Sunday for a few weeks, uh, but be warned, they will return. And I, I think they're helpful. And so I appreciate you doing that and being a part of that. Uh, one other thing I want to mention is we have a newcomer's lunch coming up October 2nd. If you're new to PCC in the last half year or so, we would love to have you join us. This is just a low-key time. You'll meet some of the elders, some of the staff. You'll hear a bit about the church. But more importantly, it'll give you a chance to have a conversation beyond the quick rush of Sunday morning, right? 
and we want to do that and have a chance for you to build some connections and relationships with other people, and we'd really value being there. And so uh, if you want to invite, I've got some. There should be some details in the bulletin or the e-news. And if you're not getting the e-news, which is our e weekly email newsletter, uh, talk to myself, talk to Yoriko, who's at the Welcome Center in the foyer after the church, and she'll get your email and add you on to that. And I also have some paper invites for the newcomer's lunch. So if you hunt me down after the service, I'd be happy to give you one of those. And it's got the details on there. Growing up, I was an avid reader. My whole family was. We would go to the, sun, the local library every Sunday. I remember this. Like, we'd go to church, have lunch, and go to the library. And I would always get out at least half a dozen books. And it got to the point when I was 10, 11, my parents were like, Mike, you cannot take out whatever book you want from the adult section. Like, I was trying to read so much, and I found I'd read through most of the books I wanted to read in the kids and the youth section, so I was looking for other things. Um, and then eventually I got a job, and my reading time cut back, and then university hit me, and my reading changed to all the assignment reading, right? And I kind of got tired of reading, so I didn't do any reading for fun. And especially fiction, that all fell to the wayside. And that continued for well over two decades as I did my different degrees and uh, with work and all that, and then having kids and a family. Um, my reading was primarily work or school related. Well, when I graduated my last degree four years ago, I found myself not really having to read anything for a change, and it was kind of nice. And then after a few months, I'm like, this is kind of weird. I should be reading something. And so I started reading a little bit more. And then COVID hit, and I found myself reading a whole lot. And whether it be fiction or nonfiction. And as I've gotten older, I find myself enjoying biographies more and more, which I never did before. And two of my favorite ones, uh, one is about Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the other is about William Wilberforce. What I like in biographies is you get a different perspective on history that was, that was occurring around these people at that time, and it helps fill in the blanks, or at least add depth to our understanding of history, whether it be Bonhoeffer and the rise of Nazi Germany, or uh, Wilberforce and the English politics and the, uh, working to end the slave trade. Uh, biography and history together give us a deeper and a more meaningful, broader understanding. And the more perspectives you have, the bigger the picture you get. I've realized, as I've been working through Jeremiah, that this is one of the reasons why I'm drawn to the book of Jeremiah as I've been studying it. Because it's both biographical about Jeremiah, but also shares the history of Judah and the messages from Jeremiah that are interwoven into that history at that specific time. So as we do the series, we're going to look at both. We've, we've talked about that already. And since last week we looked at the calling of Jeremiah, which is a part of his biography, this week we're going to look at Judah now and the background of how they got into the position that they are in in the book of Jeremiah, where they're going to be under siege and ultimately go into exile. Now, I do want to do a quick side note. Uh, during the sermon series, you're going to hear me talk about Judah and other times about Israel. I'm going to use them pretty inter interchangeably. Uh, while the focus of Jeremiah is on Judah, um, Israel, the northern kingdom, is already in exile in Assyria. So, 
And I'm going to flush this out in uh, one of our e-news musings so you have a bit more background without having to dive into it in the message if you're interested in that. But the message from Jeremiah is to Judah, but it's also for all of Israel. It's for God's people. So I use those interchangeably. Now, I've had moments in my life when I've experienced things and wondered, how did I get here? Best case, I've got four daughters, and I'm looking, I've got a daughter second year university, a daughter playing volleyball, another one in grade eight, another one in grade five, and like any parent with kids is like, where did that time go and how did I get here? It just goes by so fast. It's so wonderful. But maybe you can relate with that sense of how did this happen? How did I get here like this? What happened to get us to this spot? Well, that's what Jeremiah is doing in chapter 2 for Judah and all of Israel. He's not eliminating their grief and trauma that they've experienced as they look back on what's happened from now that they're in exile and they're reading his writings. But chapter 2 is providing the context for what happened to Judah going into exile under Babylon. So last week we looked at Jeremiah's calling, as we mentioned, and his being appointed prophet. And we had to have that information first before we looked at Judah to understand the message he would bring, that the message is from God, that Jeremiah is God's appointed voice to bring the word of God to people. And that gives us the context for the rest of the book. So in chapter 2, we're going to see Jeremiah's first message to Judah, and it's a blunt and honest assessment of what has happened that's put Judah in the position they are in, explaining how and why the exile has happened. And the text wants us to be clear, the message being communicated is directly tied to Jeremiah's call. And you're going to notice the word, the, the phrase, the word of the Lord came to me, if you look at the passage. And this echoes the same phrasing in the call narrative for, for Jeremiah leaving no doubt to the reader that the message is connected with the one who's been called. And that's to make sure we know this is God's word spoken through his prophet. This isn't opinion. This isn't speculation. This is God's word saying this is how it is. And what we see in chapter 2 are Hebrew poems. Now, Hebrew poetry does not always translate as well into English. So let's not get hung up on, well, it doesn't rhyme. Um, the first poem is really short, just a couple verses in verses 2 and 3. And the next one's much longer, starts in verse 5. And uh, Neil read part of it, but it just keeps going and going. But both of the poems start with the phrase, this is what the Lord says. And it reiterates that this message is from God. And the format of poetry is important because it allows us to see the imagery in it for what it is. Poetic imagery that is quite dramatic, quite strong, but designed to communicate a truth for us to understand. The first poem we're going to look at really sets the scene for where Israel was and who Israel was supposed to be. So we see in verses 2 to 3, uh, this short poem from God introduces Israel as the bride of Yahweh. The nation was devoted to God and faithfully following God through the wilderness. And Israel was set apart by God. Things were good. 
Things were wonderful. We know those stories as we've read the Old Testament. The wonderful stories of God declaring this as his people and leading them out of Egypt with incredible miracles, leading them through on dry land through the midst of water, providing for them in the wilderness. Those were good years in some ways, and yet very hard years too. And the imagery then changes from a sense of marriage to that of harvest. And Israel is the first fruit of the harvest. And what that would mean is that the person who's doing the harvesting, the first fruit belongs to God and no one else. And it's saying, Israel, you belong to me. That's what God is saying. Nobody else. You were mine. You were my bride. You were my first harvest. And it's recognizing that the land and everything belongs to God. So whether as a wife or the first fruits, this imagery in the poem communicates a simple truth. Israel completely belongs to God. That's how it was designed to be. That's how it was meant to be. And we are told that anyone who would stand against Israel were found guilty and would experience disaster because God was on Israel's side. They were his people. This is an idyllic, some ways romantic notion for Israel of how it was. Now, or maybe God is just showing some grace to make the contrast of what is happening clear. Because we know from Scripture, journeying through the wilderness was not a perfect experience for Israel. They struggled. They strayed from God at times. And yet still that wilderness time, that experience is held up in an idyllic way here. It's poetry. And God is allowed to take poetic license. Helps when you're God, doesn't it? And this short poem is the before of a before and after. In many ways, it's like a married couple. The imagery is there. Uh, looking back on their honeymoon. You know those first weeks when you're married? Those first awkward weeks? When you're trying to figure out how to do life together and you're like, no, the toilet paper goes this way, not that way. And by the way, the original pattern for the toilet paper has it on the outside. Just saying. Just saying I've got substantiation for my argument. But during those first weeks, you kind of forget about any disagreements or the growing pains of marriage. Uh, you're just in love. Right? It's all good. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. And then we come to the second poem. And what we're seeing in the second poem um, is where you don't want to go in marriage. <laughs> it's some, some theologians call it a covenant or prophetic lawsuit. <laughs> you know, it's surely not a good sign in a marriage when you have to get the lawyers involved, is it? <laughs> That's kind of the case here. God is making his legal case against Israel, against Judah specifically, but all of Israel. The second poem is an indictment against all of Israel for its failure to be God's faithful covenant partner. Now, for us, covenants become a really nice phrase we use in the church. It sounds good, right? Oh, it's covenant. And so we talk about our marriage commitment or our marriage covenant. It's a promise to one another. 
But in Scripture, the language of covenant is the foundational way that God portrays the relationship between God and his people, and ultimately all of humanity. This image is so present, we identify in the work of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, that Jesus himself is the new covenant between God and humanity. Now, I'd love to go into depth on what a covenant is, but essentially, it's meant to be an unbreakable promise between two parties. And in Scripture, it often has a legal contractual sense to it. So, while the first poem spells out how the relationship was, the second one that is quite lengthy is this indictment against Israel for how it broke the very covenant it had with God. Israel broke not just its promises, but the very foundation of its relationship with God. And the indictment starts with this statement. What fault did your ancestors find in me? That they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and they became worthless themselves. In other words, God is asking, what's wrong with me, Israel? That you would turn away from me to false gods and idols. What is wrong with me, the God that brought you out of Egypt? And then it continues. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land, and you made my inheritance detestable. And then in verse 9, we see indeed that this is a legal argument God is making. He's bringing his case against Israel. And he, as Lord God Almighty, isn't just making the case. He is giving the verdict of the case. Now, this argument like many legal arguments, no offense to any lawyers, are, is quite lengthy. Lawyers have a way with words, right? But I want us to hone in on a few verses and reflect on them. And I think they show the heart of the issue for Israel. And I believe the heart of the issue for our world today, and perhaps even ourselves. Here's these words. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? And yet, they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. So let's summarize that argument one more time. Other nations with false gods and idols that they built are loyal to their gods. They don't go changing gods. Even though they're not gods and they're useless. They're loyal to them. But Israel, which worships the one true God, has proven it again and again and again through incredible, magnificent miracles and are worshiping the Lord God Almighty have turned away from Yahweh, the Lord God, their God, the one who saved them and redeemed them and claimed them as his people. They're turned away from the one true God to fake gods made by men. Idols without power, 
idols that are first false gods, idols that are useless pieces of garbage. That's God's case. And this is not a new problem. Adam and Eve turned from a relationship with God in the garden to choose a forbidden fruit. They put a fruit over the God they walked with in the garden. Israel built a golden calf to worship rather than obey the God that brought them out of Egypt. So just before that, a God who brought them out with power and might. And yet they choose instead to make their own idol. And then have the gall to say, it's the cow that took us out of Egypt. All the beef farmers were happy. Good promo. Again and again, Israel turned to foreign gods around them that were false, turning from the one true God. Why in the world would you turn from a God that brought your people out of Egypt with great miracles, faithfully led you through the wilderness for decades, miraculously led you into a promised land, defeating nation after nation? Why would you turn from a God of power to a worthless God created by humans? Why? And we need to ask that of ourselves because we're still doing it today. Again and again. Today we're turning from God to our modern idols of wealth and power or prestige and success or knowledge. Why do we put God on the back burner as the root of our identity, at the core of who we are, so we can have our identity rooted in sex or things or politics or anything else. Maybe we don't openly worship false idols that we made with our hands. Maybe we've moved on from that. But don't think we don't have our own idols still. They're all around us. And the temptation is still there. And when we still give into that temptation to turn from centering our lives on the one true God, and instead of focusing on God, making him the central character of our story, we take something else and we put it in the center of our life instead. Maybe it's a relationship with someone else. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's wealth. I don't know what your baggage is. I don't know what your idol is. But what is your temptation? Because I think we each have something that's tempting us to replace God. Take a moment. What is your life currently centered on? Not just wish you wish it would be centered on, but look at where you put your time, your energy your focus, your study, your thoughts? What are they centered on? Another way to look at it is, what are you holding back from God? What are you not willing to give over to God and let him have a say in? 
Who or what is the main character of your life story right now? I don't want you to gloss over that question. I don't want you to come to me afterwards and say, Mike, that was a great message that other people needed to hear. I want you to chew that over for yourself. What is your temptation to pull you away from God? Who's the main character of your story? We come to faith in Jesus because we encounter a relationship with him and are convinced he is alive because he died on the cross and he rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to heaven. We get baptized because of that fact. We believe in that. Why then do we get off track? Why do we set Jesus on the back burner in our life or keep him out of reach from parts of our life, compartmentalizing him into different spots of our life where he doesn't have a say? And the answer to all these questions of why do we do that is the same. You see, whether it's Adam and Eve at creation, whether it's Israel and a golden cow or us, the answer is the same. You want to know what the answer is, I think? We turn from the one true God to false gods because the false gods we create ask nothing of us. We turn to false gods because they don't have any expectations of us. We want God's help when things are bad. When we're struggling and hurting. God, I'll do anything. Just help me with this. But when things are good, when we're comfortable, are we still willing to do whatever God asks of us? Or do we want to take the easy route and have no commitment? God, I've got this. Things are good. I don't need you right now, God. So we want to put God on the shelf. And instead, we look for the short-term pleasure, the short-term reward that our false gods give us. After all, they've got no commitment to us. We have no commitment to them. No expectations for us. They're false gods. We turn from God to other things because the other things we create can't ask anything of us. It's just easier. It seems, at least at first. You see, God asks something of each of us if we're in a relationship with him. Any relationship we're in comes at a cost. It's not a relationship if there's no cost, if there's no give-take, if you're not putting anything into it, if there's no expectations. 
The image of marriage is one of the ones that God uses for his relationship with his people. Can you imagine a marriage relationship without expectations? That's just not marriage. And a relationship with God is no exception. It comes at a cost. Now, I want to be clear. I believe God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, and we do not earn that with anything. But I believe when we accept the grace and love of Jesus, we enter into that relationship with God. We're called to carry our cross. We're called to sacrifice. We're called to be different than the world. Why? Because we've chosen a relationship with the one true God instead of a relationship that prioritizes the world, the false gods of the world. We turn from God when we are unwilling to do what God asks of us. And we turn to something that has no expectations. Not always calculating the cost of what that is. Israel was in that spot. They were comfortable and no longer wanted to pay the price of faith. They didn't want to submit their life to a God that they didn't seem to know as well at that point anymore. So they strayed. They turned to false gods who asked nothing of them. They had the illusion of faith without any meat to it. And they end up turning from the covenant promises they had with God, promises to live God's way, and turn to living their own way. So they find themselves here in Jeremiah, hearing a litany of charges against them. All their own arguments for who they are refuted by God. And it sets them onto the path of exile from the land God had given them. Land he takes away because they've turned from him and are no longer his people. God summarizes his case this way. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is there no hope? We know, we know the outcome in that Judah is put under siege for years and brought from its home into exile in Babylon, a long-term relocation for them. Can Israel do anything to make it right? Well, it turns out it's not Israel who does something. It's God. And that thing that God does is found in the Gospels. And it's not an it, it's a he. And he is Jesus. And interesting enough, Jesus directly references what happens with Judah here. You see that reference to living water? And Jeremiah? Well, Jesus is the living water, we're told. The same living water that God proclaimed was rejected by him or by Israel. Jesus says he's that water. He's talking with a Samaritan woman at a well. And Samaritan and Jews were not people who got along. So it was weird that he was talking to this lady. But he's trying to draw her closer to God. And I think the interaction gives us wonderful insight into God's heart for Judah and all of Israel in the time of Jeremiah. The God, that Jesus is pursuing this relationship that's estranged between the two peoples because he values it, even though it's a broken relationship. Just like God had a heart for Judah and all of Israel, even despite what had come between them. 
There was an issue with Israel not being obedient to God, not following the rules. But you know what? That's not the main problem. That's just a symptom. If you look at the relationship and the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus isn't going to her saying, hey, get better at following the rules. That's what you need to do. You know, there's this group called the Pharisees. They are king of rules. Get on board with them. He's not saying, hey, you're a Samaritan woman. Smarten up and do what Scripture tells you to. Could you imagine Jesus saying that? Now, does that mean Jesus didn't value the Old Testament law? Well, we're told he came to fulfill the law, not get rid of it. He was a God-fearing man who was a part of that Jewish faith. That's why he went into the temple and cleared it. Because he loved God. And all he saw was people trying to profit and do their own thing and made something to focus other than God. No, he doesn't send her to the Pharisees. Doesn't tell her to keep rules. Instead, he asked her for a drink. And she's like, how can you ask me for a drink? A, a woman, B, a Samaritan? Like, this is not normal. How can you ask for a relationship when you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan? And Jesus then says, if you really knew who I was and what I'm offering you, you'd be asking me for living water. There's that phrase again that we saw in Jeremiah. And then a bit later on, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the living water that Jesus offers all of us. The very thing Israel rejected, Jesus is offering to us. And it's put in the context not of a bunch of rules to keep, but a relationship. That's what Jesus has to offer. Jesus wanted her to build up a relationship with the one true God through him. To be nourished by the eternal relationship with God found in Jesus. God wanted Israel and Jeremiah to have a relationship with him. And they reject him again and again. And yes, there's consequences, but when the overarching messages I see in the book of Jeremiah, in the midst of the chaos and the destruction... And Israel's rejection of God, God is still saying, I still love you. And I still want a relationship with you. And yes, this is going to take a long time to rebuild, but I have not forgotten you. I am not going to forsake you like you've forsaken me. And I have a plan. God pursues Israel. And God is still pursuing us, each of us. God pursued us by sending his son in the world so we could have a relationship with the one true God made possible through the love and sacrifice of Jesus. It's nothing we do, it's God pursuing us. The question is, are we going to respond to that relationship? And we need to make sure that our relationship is rooted, our faith is rooted in a relationship and not a bunch of rules. When we root ourselves in rules, thinking this is faith, 
but we don't know the relationship. We've just created another idol in our life. We're just rooting ourselves in something that we feel we can control. The expectation of faith needs to flow out of relationship. So is your faith rooted in relationship or rules? Jesus offers us the relationship God wants us to have. God pursued us and made a way back for us into a relationship with God. Jeremiah shows the problem that we've rejected God, the spring of living water. And Jesus shows us the solution on how we can come back into relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. I hope for each of us. I pray for each of us. That as we live in this world that's looking to escape the problems of the world, looking for solutions, looking for salvation from something, that we're rooting ourselves in Jesus. Centering our lives on the triune God. And in that we find the grace and hope and love and the freedom we need. You know, it's interesting that we see expectations in relationship and they can either be seen as a burden but they're really not. They allow us to be free in the relationship, to be ourselves, care for each other, to love God. And we have a freedom through Jesus in which we can have a relationship with God. And we need Jesus. It's a relationship that changes us, renews us, cleanses us, and makes us holy. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I hope we can all cry out with our hearts, oh, how we need you. We live in a world that wants us to center ourselves on so many other things, but they are empty promises that lead us astray from you and lead us away from you. We see in Jeremiah the destruction of turning from you. The burden of it, the brokenness of the world. And yet in Jesus, we see the hope we can have of a new relationship. And it doesn't mean life will be easy, Lord. We know that. But we know that there's a bigger picture with you, Jesus. An eternal picture. Far beyond anything this world can understand. So Lord, help us to root ourselves in you. To make you the center part of our story. To live daily with the need for you. And to live in your grace. And to show your love to the world no matter the cost. In your name we pray. Amen.